Hi, I'm Raylene Taskowski, and I've talked to over 10,000 women about sex over the past decade. Welcome to the Stand Up Comedy Sex Ed podcast. Welcome to Stand Up Comedy Sex Ed. It's where you can get questions answered like... How long does it take the average man to orgasm? And... How long does it take the average woman to orgasm? And also... Why is it so hot in here? Audiences agree. It's brilliantly funny. Raylene makes sex ed fun. This show is entertaining, factual, and relatable. There's nothing worse than being halfway done with sex and feeling your vagina shut down on you. (laughs) You've got to see stand-up comedy sex ed. I am ready to go do that comedy show. (laughs) Welcome to the Stand-Up Comedy Sex Ed podcast hosted by Raylene Taskowski and some other guy, girl, guest, or guru. And today's guest girl is definitely a guru. I would like you to welcome with me, Dr. Nicole Lowe. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Yes. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's so different to be on the other side of the microphone. I since I also co-host a podcast as well. So I I actually feel kind of nervous, <laughs> even though I have hosted my own podcast for two years, but it just seems different today. So you have your PhD in nursing. Yes. So you're a doctor nurse. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> it's really confusing to people. When I introduce myself as Dr. Lowe, they think you're a physician. And I'm like, no, I'm actually not that useful. <laughs> But hey, you're a nurse, so you are. But I'm also, but I'm also not a very useful nurse because it's been a long time since I've done like frontline practice nursing. So I'm also kind of a useless nurse as well. Uh, So (laughs) I I call myself a nerd nurse. So basically, and really because not a lot of people know that I didn't know that you could get your PhD in nursing, but you can. Um, Nursing actually has its own like body of knowledge. And so, but you can still research anything. So although I have a PhD in nursing, my focal area is women's sexual and reproductive health. So a lot of my coursework then centered around women's health. And my research specifically was looking at Uh, perspectives of responsible sexual behavior among women and then how their context like so where they live what type of area they live in and how that impacts their definition of responsible sexual behavior and then their behaviors themselves like their ability to quote unquote be responsible my most favorite population of women the this is like my nerd jam is rural women's health i love rural women they inspired me to get my phd i identify as a rural woman uh so that's that's really what drives me so i noticed that you had said responsible sexual behavior and i'm Mm -hmm. curious as to i mean you said there's a difference in definition between different places. So can you share more about that? Yes. So how this works is this was like my dissertation research was this idea of responsible sexual behavior. And it was really born out of my advisor's research who was looking at uh, plan B and sexual behaviors of college women and college women themselves organically came up with this or would say this concept oh, being responsible or responsible sexual behavior. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I decided to run with this idea of, okay, what is responsible sexual behavior? And also when we think more broadly, I mean, 
this idea of responsibility is very pervasive, right? Like drink responsibly, have sex responsibly, just be responsible. But what does that actually mean? And so in my dissertation, I had three different categories or research, uh, different three different types of research I did within this. So the first part was looking at how does the literature or what's out in the world, define responsible sexual behavior. And so this was looking at everything from Healthy People 2010, Healthy People 2020, some older research that came out around the 2000s on what does responsible, what is responsible sexual behavior. And interestingly, although people talk about this idea of responsibility, nobody really defines what that actually means. Right. And so I took it upon myself to basically like take in all of this literature, look at what are the attributes, so what are some defining components of responsible sexual behavior, and then with the analysis I did, not only do you look at defining attributes, but you also look at what they call antecedents or what needs to be in place before the concept occurs. So you have your antecedents, your attributes, and then you have consequences. So like when this concept occurs, what are the consequences or what happens on the back end of this? So with that, I'm going to actually pull it up because I had a feeling you were going to ask and I don't <laughs> want to misrepresent my own research. <laughs> um, well, I so mean, it's I just one of those things. We all know that what one person thinks is responsible behavior in any uh, situation, like you said, drinking or whatever, is going to be different than somebody else's definition of responsible behavior. 100%. And so the literature, here's what I came up with. A socially, so responsible sexual behavior is a socially desirable and deliberate pattern of behaviors that protects an individual's sexual health by managing risk and respecting sexual partners in the context of her community. So really this definition leaves it up to the society or the environment to which a woman exists in. That's really what creates this responsible sexual behavior. So really the definition is outside of her, right? Right. And so then the next piece or the next part of my research was then looking at how do, oh, sorry, I'm going to back up before I get into the college women. So then I talked about the antecedents or what needs to happen in order for this context, for this concept to occur. And that is forethought, knowledge. So you have to have knowledge of how to manage all this risk and access to resources and services. So we need to have these things in place in order to be responsible. And then the back end of that, the consequence then of responsible sexual behavior is protection from risk, enhanced relationships, self-fulfillment, life enhancement. And I wanna take a minute before we get into different populations that it's really interesting to think about the consequences of responsible sexual behavior, especially the self-fulfillment life enhancement, because I think those are pieces that are never talked about when we talk about sex right? Like, or when we talk about managing risk, it's like, well, so you don't get pregnant. So you don't get an STI. We're not 
talking about the self-fulfillment, the life enhancement that can come with these things, which I think is really important. And then on the front end of that with the antecedents, you know, you think of access to resources and knowledge and how that is such a gap right now in our society when we think about all of this cutting funding to Planned Parenthood, this whole idea of no sex until marriage or abstinence-only education and how pervasive as it, that is. Right. So here we are on one hand telling folks, you need to be responsible, but yet we aren't giving them the tools to actually be responsible. Yeah, that makes sense. So, if the kids are you know, educated, they don't even know what they're doing wrong. No, right. and so how can you actually be responsible if you don't have access to knowledge, access to resources? So in really, in a lot of ways, we kind of just set everybody up for failure. Mm. And then, again, when you think about the consequences, how often are people really talking about sex ed from a space of self-fulfillment or life enhancement? Nobody? Nobody. Well, me. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> a very small population. Yeah. And so that's something, too, I want to take, like, a quick quick rabbit hole here. So I had listened to your podcast on uh, uh, talking, talking to your kids about sex. And I loved it, by the way. Thank and you. I, I want to build on that conversation as well, related to this idea of self-fulfillment and life enhancement. And I think what happens when parents talk about sex ed, and I, I saw this in my research, especially with rural women, is that if parents talk about sex, it comes from a space of fear. Like they're scared that their daughter is going to get pregnant like the neighbor girl or their young cousin, or they tell their kids things to protect them from predators because they don't want their kids sexually assaulted. While those things are all very important, we have to recognize that when we come from a place of fear, we're really doing a disservice to our children. And I would challenge your listeners, especially who are parents, to flip the script on that. And instead of talking out of a space of fear, to talk out of a space of empowerment. And how can I empower my child? And to really broaden our definition of sex education. Like I think so often we, we focus on the risks. And that's really what I found when I did this definition is that we often define what is responsible sexual behavior by first defining what's quote unquote irresponsible. And so what I found in the literature is that how they would measure or quantify responsibility was really by numbers of what they would consider irresponsible, like number of STI infections, number of unplanned pregnancies, number of abortions, number of partners. And so again, this, this came out of this negative space. And so again, I challenge to come out of this space of empowerment. Like, what can I do for my kid to empower them through their lives and to broaden their idea of sexual health beyond like, these are the mechanics. Don't, if you have sex, you're going to get an STI, you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> and really to think about 
love. Yeah. No, don't come and in our bedroom because we're having sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but to think about, again, to broaden this and to include, like, how, how do you teach your kids to love themselves before they love others? Pod- positive body image. And, you know, this confidence, coming from the space of confidence, because there's so much research that the more like the more confidence and the more that your children are able to self-advocate and the more that your kids know, they actually delay sex longer and have fewer partners because they're coming from a space of confidence and empowerment and they're having sex when they choose to and want to, not because they don't know what's happening, they don't know how to advocate for themselves, they think it's just what everyone else is doing. And so really coming from the space of empowerment, and I also challenge parents, and I I don't mean to make a sweeping generalization, but I'm going to kind of do that. (laughs) I would venture to say that most folks have some sort of sex shame. And how that, yeah, and how that sex shame manifests and, and we can really transfer that to our kids. And you may not knowingly be transferring your sex shame to your kids, but when you don't talk about sex, that's a transfer of shame because likely you're not talking about sex because you have your own unresolved issues or shame surrounding sex. And so I know that for me, when I, when I talk to my daughter or when I talk to my kids about this, in the back of my mind, I'm always kind of thinking, I don't want my kids to feel how I feel or have the shame that I'm working through. I mean, I researched this, right? And I totally have shame in my own life that I work through because I grew up with this messaging of no sex until marriage. And, you know, this, this religious lens that they put on everything or because nobody talked about it. And when nobody talks about it, you're like, oh, wow, like this must be really taboo. Right. And for it to be taboo means then there's likely shame associated with it. That's and so, why we're talking about it. <laughs> exactly. So I really challenge listeners to be like, wow, what shame do I have? And I'm going to do a shameless self-plug for my podcast. Uh, we have an amazing episode where we interviewed a sex therapist. Her name is Nikki Julian. And uh, the podcast is called the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. And I've actually listened to it multiple times just because it's such a good self-work episode. And the way that you can recognize if you have shame is by asking yourself, who do I talk to about sex? What do I talk to them about? And if you're like, girl, I don't talk to anybody about sex, that's shame. Yep. And if you think about your best friends, and I, I fell in this too, I don't really talk about sex with my best friends. So it took me pause to be like, wait. I don't even talk to my best friends, but even more importantly, are you talking about sex with the person you're having sex with? Ooh, good one. And if you're not, that's shame. Because of all people that you should be able to talk about sex to, it should be the person you're having sex with, right? Agreed. Yeah. And so I th- it's so awkward though. And I know, and obviously, you know, that, you know, what I do for a living is, you know, I talk about sex, but 
and I've been to so many classes where like, yeah, you just should be able to say, Hey, that thing that you did, I really liked it. But mm-hmm. um, I remember there is, there is the one thing that he did one time and I really liked it. And, and we didn't do it again for probably two or three years because I wasn't able to just say, Hey, remember that thing that we did? I really liked it. And then, <laughs> and then when, when you look back on that, you're like, how ridiculous is that? Exactly. I really liked that. And so yeah. now it's more frequent because you know he knows that i like it so he we do it like that more often (laughs) yeah and really it's a win-win for everybody right like because i feel as your partner i want to know what they like or don't like like why would i want to keep doing something that you think sucks right that that's not good for my ego either And so really both people benefit the more open dialogue that you have about this. But I think for so many, and I've had conversations with, you know, just casually with friends and yet they too are feeling really awkward talking about sex to their husbands. Yeah. I see a lot of that at my parties where the the women will just be like, this is totally true. I don't know how to tell my husband that. And I'm like, well, bring home this product. It'll be pretty obvious. I also tell people sometimes take home the catalog and you know, you give him a blue pen and you take a pink pen and each of you go through the catalog and circle the things that you think you'd be interested in because now you're having a silent conversation. And, Mm -hmm. And I said, but be polite. Don't come back with a black marker and be like, go through all of his circles and be like, no, no, no. (laughs) But that is a good way to have a silent conversation with your partner. Just take a catalog and be like, next time you're in the bathroom, just sit down and circle some shit you're interested in. Yeah. And it takes like no time at all. And what a great way to start a conversation. And I, and since listening to even that podcast and recording it, there are times where I'm like, you know, I'm thinking it and I have to pep talk myself and I'm like, just say it, just say it, just say it out loud. Just, just tell them you can do this. And I work up this whole scenario and I'm totally, I'm so in my head that I've already had this whole dialogue in my brain of how this is going to go. And then I'm like, just, just spit it out and I'll just spit it out. And he's always been very receptive, very positive. It's like, okay. I'm like, oh my God, why was that so hard to just say? That reminds me of back when I was little and I'd be at my grandmother's house and I I don't know, we weren't terribly snuggly as a family. It's not like, like my, my grandkids would just come in and be like, Grammy, I need a drink. And I'd be like, okay. But for some reason I was just terrified to ask my grandmother for a drink, which is silly because she was a very nice woman. But I was like, how do I want to say it? I don't want to say it wrong. I don't want to sound rude. How am I going to ask for this drink? I'm really, really thirsty. (laughs) And sometimes I feel like when we're trying to have a conversation with our partner about sex, it's the same way. And it's like, he's probably not going to be mad about this, but how do I say, I really like it when you put your finger in that exact spot. (laughs) Exactly. And then really, again, when you step back, that's this fear of judgment, like, oh my gosh, what is my husband going to think of me if I tell him I really like this? (laughs) More broadly, how ridiculous. But second, that's a manifestation of shame. Like, obviously, I have the shame that I, and I think a lot of women feel this way. Oh, I... I don't want him to think that I'm like some freak or something because I really like that or, but again, that's all just a manifestation of our shame. And I I think try that. Yeah. And I think that when we can step back and become more self-aware and say, Oh, wow, 
that's my shame manifesting. Where did that come from? And then you can start, you know, really peeling back the layers, you know, and likely this goes back to childhood. And it's like, oh, no wonder why I feel that way. Nobody told me about this. Nobody talked about this in a way that was normal. And in one of our episodes, I'll never forget someone said that what is most personal is also most universal. What's most personal is most universal. And sex is something that is very personal and also extremely universal. I mean, right, even at a biological level, we are animals and animals reproduce. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he's a a predominant, uh, he's a psychologist. He has a pyramid. And at the bottom of the pyramid is what we need. And then as a pyramid goes up, it's things that help you be, you know, live kind of your full life, but you don't necessarily have to have. So at the bottom is food, water, shelter, and sex. Sex is the most foundational part of being human. And so, again, this goes back to that what's most personal is most universal, yet nobody's having these conversations. Nobody's saying what works, what doesn't work. I mean, let's face it, the clitoris is pretty young as far as, like, knowledge and function and when it was created as a 3D image. Yeah. I mean, this is all really fairly recent if you think of how long women have been around. I actually have a 3D clitoris that I bring to my parties and to my stage shows. Um, and uh, the bulbs broke off my first set. So somebody made, just made me a new one. <laughs> <laughs> but are people shocked at how big it is? Yeah, they really are. And I think that's what I love about when I do my stage show, because there are men at my stage show and they see it and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, dude, you only get this little bit to touch, but this is all of it. And that's why we need the foreplay. Yeah. Because you can't see all of the arousal that needs to happen for us to have an orgasm. All you can see is yours, which, you know, you you breathe or you think, or you see a pretty picture and you're like swing. But for us, everything is on the inside. So you know, you're just up there and you're just like, wick, 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 wick. And we're like, chill out, dude. It's not a DJ booth. <laughs> no. And not only is it like, and it's so mental for women, right? Like so you much. have to be in this headspace. Like you're not going to orgasm if you're thinking, oh, okay. So I need to make sure that when we get done here, I need to like, I need to switch the laundry. I need to fold all this stuff. And then, oh yeah, I should probably do dishes. Oh, and then there's that permission slip I need to sign. Oh crap. I forgot. I need to make cookies for tomorrow at school. Oh, Did I didn't I get that paper door? done yet. Yeah. Like <laughs> things aren't happening if all that's in your brain. And then, you know, and that's just kind of the mundane things. Now, if you had a layer of shame where you think, that it's inappropriate for you to enjoy yourself or you've been told your whole life that you shouldn't have sex until you're married and now, you know, you've been shamed this whole time. Bippity-boppity-boo, you get married and you're supposed to become like, you know, they call it the Madonna whore complex, right? right? Like you're supposed to go from this pure little thing and then someone says, I now pronounce you so-and-so and all you're supposed to become this like wanton, lustful individual, And unfortunately, that's not how it works because you've had however many years of all this messaging of sex is bad, sex is bad. You're going to be dirty. You're going to be impure, all these things. And then, 
again, by the stroke of what you're supposed to let all that go. Yeah. That's not easy to do. No, it's so not easy to do. And so, I mean, there's a lot of layers there. So again, kind of circling back to this parent stuff, it's, do you want that for your kids? Do you want your kids to harbor all of these things that they feel? And, you know, if people want to tell their kids no sex until marriage, that's your prerogative. That's, you know, but I think what needs to happen then is you need to then also be able to set up your kids so that when they get married, it is joyful. It is special. And those things aren't going to happen if you spent their whole life telling them that it's wrong. I think you could loop in this stuff about self-fulfillment, life enhancement, you know, all these beautiful things that can come from sex. But marriage also isn't a silver bullet. People who are married still experience potentially, STIs, unplanned pregnancies, domestic violence. Like there's a lot of stuff that still gets looped in there that marriage doesn't just solve. Gender inequities, gender role problems. And so again, when we broaden our lens on what what are we talking about? What is really included in in sexual health and in sex ed? I, I think you, there is probably space for you to say, Hey, but you know, wait till, wait to do this until the person that you're going to be with forever. But you have to come from a a better place of just fear and negativity. Yeah. I've got a guest coming on in a couple of weeks and she's talking all about the purity culture and how it damaged, damaged her. Yeah. Where she wasn't able, I God, one of the things that drives me crazy is I cannot tell you how many 17, 18, 19 year old girls just get married so they can have sex. Mm -hmm. And then a year later they're divorced because they just got married so they could have sex because the church said that you had to, you know, be married to have sex. And then they get there and they're like, well, this sucks. I don't like it. I don't like being married. And then they get a divorce and now they feel like they're on the outs from the church and from their parents and from everything because they got divorced. And it's like, what a cycle. It is. What a crazy ass cycle that is. And a cycle that, again, it's like all around sex. And if you'd have a healthy sexuality and ideas about this, I mean, there are totally ways that adolescents can explore intimacy without having sex. Right. But if you just like talk about none of it or that it is possible to still experience intimacy or love with someone without having sex, you, you, you even lose that opportunity. I also think we should separate orgasms from sex because those are two different things. You can have lots and lots of sex and never have an orgasm. <laughs> yeah, the, yes. One is not necessarily tied with the other. Right. I, I remember saying... Uh, at some point I could live without sex forever. And somebody looked at me and they were just like, what? And I'm like, but not orgasms. I got to have <laughs> orgasms. Like, I'm just saying the messy, getting dirty, all that stuff. I uh, fine, but I only do it to get the orgasm. And so uh, separating those two. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of masturbating, not just personally, but I think everybody should. I think everybody would be happy. I think everybody should have a 30 minute nap time every day and, <laughs> you know, masturbate for a little bit and then sleep for a little bit and then everybody's day would be much better. And talk about something else that's really laced with a lot of stigma and shame. I mean, you even have some people on the far right who go as far as to say that masturbation is considered self-rape. 
No, for crying out loud. Have you heard that? Yeah, and I've seen all these stupid memes where, like, the clitoris is the devil's doorbell and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, who hurt you, boo? Because you're broken. Yeah. (laughs) And, I, I mean, think if you're receiving that message your whole life, that's really difficult to get over once you get married. Yeah. I've talked to a couple women who got married and didn't have any problems and everything started out perfectly. And I've talked to a couple women where it's just, you know, it took a while for them to release the shame stigma that had been put on them their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. It's really not. Uh, so I think we kind of digressed a smidge. Oh, well, that's what we do when we talk. Is, that's why I like is, talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> it is what we do when we talk. So I'll, I'm going to try and bring us back. So that was kind of the overview of the first part of my research, this definition. So then the second part was looking at college women and how they define responsible sexual behavior. And what was really interesting was, one, it was not the same definition, right? Women really internalized it. And it was really about a goal orientation. That was a big thing that came from this. And so it was this awareness of your goals and then also an awareness of the consequences of sex. And so very often women or these college women would say, yep, I want to graduate in X number of years and then I'm going to get a job and then I'm going to get married and then I'm going to have kids. And they were very clear on this timeline. And so they were able to then integrate how their sexual health would impact their personal goals because they could recognize, oh, if I got pregnant, that would really derail or make harder my ability to graduate. And there's a ton of research out there that supports that women who get pregnant during college, it it does dramatically decrease their odds of graduating or graduating in a timely manner and also their overall like so socioeconomic status and so i I just thought how cool it was this goal piece and the other thing that really came out of this i know this is a really hot button topic but i'm just going to talk about it from the lens of my research is when we talked about or when i looked at the literature abortion was very often a marker of irresponsible sexual behavior and that was how it was quantified was the number of abortions and Mm. really nobody talked about abortions as a responsible outcome or responsible behavior and i had women talk about how you know, thinking of this goal orientation in mind, how abortion could actually be a responsible sexual behavior because it would be done as a means to safeguard their personal goals. So perhaps they had made a quote-unquote irresponsible choice, having unprotected sex or whatever that may have been, but the responsible then behavior became having an abortion to support or to protect their overall academic or career goals. And so it was the first time that I had seen, you know, in the literature or or with what I was doing where someone put a positive spin on it. And I think that's also something that is not talked about at large when we think about abortions, that it could be the responsible decision given like a certain context. Uh, 
but really, yeah, this goal orientation. So then the third part of my research was looking at how rural women defined and managed responsible sexual behavior. And then looking at the broader picture of the rural context and how that actually impacted their ability to be responsible. Not surprisingly, it was also different than the literature. But what I found so fascinating about rural women, and I always had an idea of this because, again, I identify as a rural woman. It was just interesting to have it solidified, was the rural context I I hesitate has done an excellent job, but it has done an excellent job of completely separating the self from the sexual self. Like we have managed to separate who we are from our sexual entities and we have locked that sexual being in a bedroom where nobody can see it and nobody knows about it. And we only think about that sexual self when we are actively having sex. Otherwise it lives there and we don't acknowledge it. And I found more often than not that rural women had a harder time articulating how their sexual decisions impacted their personal goals. And I mean, I had women say, oh, I don't think about those at the same time. That's separate. Huh. I uh, have a story that I tell in my talk about, I had a friend and she would do wild, crazy sex things with her husband and have a great time. And then the next day she would feel ashamed about it. And I would tell her why, like, if you're both enjoying it and you're both consenting to it, girl, get your freak on. Yeah. you don't need to you don't need to be embarrassed about what you did. No. But again, it's like this other per, this other side of me. You know, we've we don't integrate the two and we don't integrate that oh, I am a human, I have these goals, but also I am sexual. I we we don't. We have we just kind of keep driving a wedge between our different selves or, you know, our sex self, our, our job self, our mom self, you know, we somehow we've lost our ability to integrate all these hats or all these roles we play. And again, that sex self has been locked and chained into a bedroom and it does not leave that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a shame. It is. And I think that's really problematic. And I don't know about you, I, as much as I love sexual and reproductive health, I am also a fierce advocate of mental health because I think the two are so inextricably linked. And also there's research to support that, especially when you look into LGBTQ studies and their mental health as it relates to their identities or their sexuality. I mean, that's, they're, it's very much of the same. Yeah. Uh, And again, this, looping it back to mental health again if you're in your head about all the things you're going to do you're also not going to be able to orgasm so mental health sexual health I really think need to be of the same and if mentally you're not in a good space if you're not feeling confident if you don't know how to advocate if you don't understand what a healthy or unhealthy relationship is you know you're also increasing your risk of being a victim of intimate partner violence Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's when you think about how we talk to our kids, it is fostering confidence and self-advocacy, healthy relationships, how to pick partners, all these things. 
is so important to so many facets of our lives. And I think a lot of people would argue or at least make an argument too, like how your the pulse of your overall marriage to your sex life. Can those really be separate? You know, can you have like a bang in marriage, but have a terrible, you know, sex life or vice versa? I don't know. I would argue no. <laughs> I guess it depends on, on the sex drive of the two people. Well, yes, I guess so. But if, yes, you know, if, if you both feel like, okay, we don't have sex, but we're both okay with that, then I guess that's one thing. But I would more intimacy than sex. Yes. But if you've got um, varied libido levels, then it can get really rough. Yeah. And I could definitely see that being more likely than not. Like how often are both partners saying we, we definitely have enough sex. We're on the same page with how much sex we're having. I saw something on shark tank a couple weeks ago and my husband said it was absolutely ridiculous. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I don't remember what it was called, but it was some sort of signal or light or app or something. And when one partner was interested in having sex, they would, they would, you know, push the button and if the other one was interested in having sex they would push the button and if both buttons slid up then they knew that it was a good time to have sex Mm. right and because in our marriage we have definitely fallen into the um he when he's ready to have sex he lets me know and then I'm like okay I'll put my book down and we'll have sex I almost never initiate Mm mm-hmm but there are plenty of nights where I think to myself, yeah, I wouldn't mind having sex tonight, but I just don't say anything because mm-hmm. I'm also fine not having sex tonight. But I think, and he thought it was absolutely stupid. He goes, well, why don't you just say you want to have sex when you want to have sex? And, I'm, and, I, and I was just thinking, I bet I want to have sex more often than you think I want to have sex. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was kind of brilliant. But then we also have this, um, like a little light up, a candle, a little massage candle that my company sells. And. I had uh, written on the side of it, meet me in the bedroom at 10 o'clock. And at 10.05, he texted me and he's like, where are you? And I was like, oh, shit, I forgot. (laughs) And so he says, you know what? We should just light the candle. Like when either one of us wants to have sex, just light the candle. And I said, you know what would happen is I would just walk in and I would be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I think the app would be so good because he could kind of light the candle without me knowing you lit the candle. But then if I also light the candle, then poof, then, well, then it would happen. And let's take a step back. I mean, girl, you're preaching to the choir here. And let's take a step back with this whole light idea and how difficult it is to tell the person you're having sex with, I want to have sex. That's right. shame, right? If you can't just say, hey, let's have sex, that's shame. Because if you didn't have any, you would just say it and you would right. just do it. And so what this light does is gives you a passive way of saying you want to have sex without actually saying you want to have sex. Right. So well, in like, my case, I don't think it's, it's shame. It's just like, ugh, I mean, an orgasm would be great, but do I want yeah. to, you know, <laughs> make but sure this, I smell good and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like things are in order here. Right. And now that our daughter's home from college nonstop because of COVID virus, we're having to get more sneaky about how and way we do, how we do things and mm. when we do things. Mm-hmm. 
it never bothered us when she lived here full time. It was just, you know, things happen when they happen. But now that she's home all of the time and we're used to her not being there. And now, now he's always like, shh, shh. <laughs> like, dude, I'm just breathing. She cannot hear me from the basement. It's fine. <laughs> so, okay, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole real quick. Cause I have, <laughs> I have ideas about that. Um, how do your kids otherwise feel when you have public displays of affection? Um, I, for the most part, I think the most public displays of affection we do is hand holding. Um, it doesn't bother them when we hug or we kiss. I do remember when my youngest was, I want to say seventh or eighth grade, her, her bedroom wall at the time, her bedroom was bumped, bumped up against our bedroom and she wanted to rearrange her room. And I said, you could put your bed on that wall, that wall, or that wall, but not that wall. And she said, why? And I'm like, do you want to hear me and dad have sex? (laughs) And she she said, ew, you still do that? (laughs) I was just like, I honest to God thought that was a joke that kids thought that their parents didn't have sex. And I was just like, yes, of course we do. (laughs) Yeah. And then like, how important is that? So I've read research and And I know a lot of kids will be like, ew, that's gross. And they say that even though they're like, ew, that's gross. Deep down inside, you're really communicating to your kids what a healthy relationship looks like. Right. And that you are intimate and you do have this love and it really transfers security. So if you have security with your partner and you're able to do these things, your kids actually feel more secure that your relationship is good. And obviously, if you're kissing and holding hands, you could probably argue, and if it's coming from a genuine place, that you have a good marriage or, you know, there's safety there. And so kids feel more secure in that. And when kids feel that security and love, it does wonders for them. And so I would also challenge your listeners to maybe bump up the PDA that you do in front of your kids. Now I'm not saying like full out have sex in front of your kids. That's not what I'm advocating for, but you know, like hold their hand, kiss your spouse, you know, grab their butt jokingly or whatever, however touching and stuff looks like between you and your partner. I grab his butt seriously all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And and I would challenge you to do it in front of your kids. And I would keep doing it. Even if your kids are like, ew, that's gross. Well, I mean, the youngest is 21 now. So, but yeah, no, I still do. It's, it's habit. I actually had, I'm actually a butt slapper by nature. And I've always also slapped my kids' butts and and slap them. I don't grab them, but like, um, and then my daughter one time, she was like, I hate it when you do that. And I was like, okay. And it has been such torture to retrain myself not to slap her butt when <laughs> yeah. she walks by. <laughs> but also so important that you respect her wishes because right. I was, I was, we'll go down another rabbit hole. I was recently reading, I read a lot. Um, I was recently reading about, <laughs> about this with children and how consent is so important to teach your kids. And one of the ways that parents specifically can teach their kids about consent is tickling. And I think a lot of times when we as parents, you know, you're playing around with kids and they're like, stop, stop, stop. And you keep tickling. You're actually 
violating consent and you're not teaching your kids what consent is and you're really communicating to their kids that their wishes don't matter because tickling really isn't I think could be argued like an intimate form of touching with your children. And if you're not listening to what they're saying, then you're saying their wishes don't matter. And that's sending even further messages negative that you don't want long-term. And so my daughter recently too, she, she now says, don't tickle me. And you know, sometimes my husband in playful, like we'll still do it. And I'm like, no, she told you to stop. You need to stop. Like that's her advocating for herself, even if it is quote unquote, just tickling. Right. This is the foundation of how we teach our kids about consent and advocating for their own bodies. Yeah. That's, I mean, how many people's first sexual experience started with slap and tickle? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then now if you've, if you've been trained by, you know, your whole upbringing that parents can still tickle you, even you say no, or aunt, uncle, whatever, like you're, it's going to wear on you. And I'm actually going to tell you kind of a, this, this was an extremely heartbreaking story, but this goes back to teaching our kids about consent. So this was fairly recently within the last couple months, my daughter, uh, came home from daycare and just wasn't really herself. And so anyways, we, we tried to work on her a little bit and she wouldn't tell us. And then finally my husband had put her to bed and I came in after putting my son to bed and he goes, do you want to tell mommy what happened at daycare today? And I was like, oh shit, what happened? Mm. And, you know, all sad, she goes, someone hit me. I said, okay. I wasn't mad that someone hit her. I mean, they're kids, right? Yeah. And she go, and my husband goes, but tell mom what you did and he goes did you tell the teacher and she goes yeah I told the teacher he goes and what did the teacher say to you stop tattling oh and in my head I was like oh hell no <laughs> this bitch is going down yeah and so I was like you know trying to keep it together as best as I could in front of her and I was like okay and my husband and I then profusely started to tell her that anytime someone touches her body in a way that hurts her or she does not like she needs to tell an adult and if that adult does not take immediate action she needs to tell us or another adult because that's not okay so my daughter is a very sensitive soul and so we leave the room or whatever, and Michael's like, are you going to talk to the teachers or am I? I'm like, no, I got this. And <laughs> I told him, I said, this is going to come back to bite us. Like, they're, like this is going to manifest in some other way. I know it's going to. So anyway, so the next day I went in, and I said, you know, last night Annie told me that another child hit her. And I said, I, I am not mad that another child hit her. I understand like socially developmentally, this is all par for the course. I know my kids are going to hit other kids because she's only four. Right. You know, that's not what I'm mad about. I said, but when she told me that she told a teacher and the teacher told her to stop tattling, that's a problem. I said, because now you're communicating that someone can touch her, she's going to tell someone else, and it doesn't matter, and she's just going to fear being the tattler or the narc or whatever, right. and it's going to silence her long term. And this is how this stuff starts. This is why women 
you know, don't disclose when they've been assaulted or whatever, because they get told to stop tattling. Nobody believes them and no one's going to do anything about it. So why even do anything? So whatever, the daycare is very responsive and they agreed that that too is problematic. They're going to talk to their teachers, X, Y, Z, whatever. So it was about two weeks later and I pick Annie up from daycare and she's just really quiet, not herself. I'm like, what's the matter, baby? Wouldn't tell me, wouldn't tell me. I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll talk before bed. And so at bedtime, I mean, we had to work so hard to get this out of her. And it turns out that a kid had hit her again. And I said, did you tell the teacher? And she goes, no, I didn't want to be a tattler. And I go, there it is. This, there it is. Case in point, this is how it happens. And I was... I mean, and again, we told her the same thing we had told her before. Anytime someone touches her in a way she doesn't like, you know, to tell us whatever, it's not tattling. And so I then had made a post on Facebook and I wasn't calling out the daycare. I was just more as a PSA, like, hey, folks, we need to think about as parents, when are we telling kids to just stop tattling? And and that we need to think about what's the long-term consequences of us calling them tattlers when someone hit them or whatever. And here it was, it silenced her and she didn't want to tell us. And she didn't tell an adult that another kid had hit her because she didn't want to be the tattler. And so extrapolate this across life and what that could look like in the event that she were sexually assaulted. Right. right? Yeah. So it it sparked some good conversation. And again, I wasn't meaning to like call out the daycare. They had a fabulous response. I got a fabulous response from others. And then it was really interesting. You know, my husband and I were on the same page about all this stuff. And then a couple days later, our son, who is two and is just something else, a Tasmanian (laughs) devil, if you will. As two-year-old boys are. As two-year-old boys are. And he was, like, pushing her. Like, she was trying to play with something, and he was shoving her. And Michael and she had said, Fletcher's pushing me. You know, I don't like that. And Michael, my husband, not even thinking, was like, oh, you're going to have to be tougher than that. Or, you know, something to the effect of how siblings do this to one another. And I said, no. No, no, no. She is telling us that Fletcher is touching her in a way that she does not like. We need to respect that. And we need to, you know, discipline or step in or whatever that looks like. And it was just kind of one of those moments where he was then like, oh my gosh, you're right. So I don't say that to like throw my husband under the bus, but that's how easily this happens where we say, Oh, toughen up. Oh, boys will be boys. Oh, you know, siblings hate each other. Oh, you know, insert X, Y, Z. And how that accumulates over time to silencing women. And and this also silences men because we know that men are also sexually assaulted and report at even lower rates because of how much stigma there is. Right. So really thinking about that. Yeah. Cool. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I and and I feel like part uh, 
part of me is like, it's time for self-defense classes because advocating for yourself can't always just be telling somebody. Yeah. You also have to, not with your two-year-old brother, but you need to turn around and put a fist to the face and just be like, I said fucking stop. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) and I already told my husband, I said, I'm going to tell her that if some boy continues to snap her bra or something like that, she has my permission to throat punch them. Right. Like, I, I, and if the school wants to fight me on that, great. I will go buy her ice cream afterwards. Exactly. We'll stay (laughs) home together suspended, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I said, there will be no boys are boys. Oh, that's a sign that he likes you. No, sexual assault is not a sign that someone likes you. And I think a lot of those conversations, too, are missing with our boys, especially, that how do you respect women? What does that look like? And I mean, I've told my husband, as much as I could have conversations with my kids, I think it's also really meaningful that you have them as well with them. That comes from both parents, no matter what your genders are. I think that both parents need to be on the same page of this and communicate And, you know, for a lot of times, if you do have a male-female parenting, there's probably a little bit ease of conversation between, like, same-gendered conversations. Right. And I I don't mean that to, like, say, oh, if if you don't have the other gender available to your children. I've also seen a lot of research where folks will then find – you know, a trusted person who, you know, if you have a son and, but dad's not around, you know, finding another trusted male to also have those conversations with them too can really go a long ways. But even if you don't have those, it's not to say that like your kid's, you know, going to be messed up and never, you know, is going to have issues. That's not at all what I'm advocating for. Right. I, I think having those conversations, one, is important, but depending on your scenario or situation, I've told my husband, like, you're, you're going to talk to Fletcher about masturbation. He was like, uh, what? Like, (laughs) yeah, I understand the, like, I'm the sex person and I love talking about this stuff, but it also means a lot if it comes from you. Exactly. Okay. So speaking of that, we are getting near the end of our time here. And I like to play a little game at the end of my podcast. Uh, I have a trivia question uh, from this. Uh, game it's called things they don't teach you in high school sorry things they don't teach you in school a crazy mix of fun facts random trivia and totally useless knowledge so my weird sex question of the week is is masturbation more common among people with more or less education oh yike i feel suddenly all this pressure So is it more or less common depending on your level of education? Yes. I feel like that's a trick question. No, it's not. I actually knew this. I knew this answer way before, like when I first saw this question, I was like, oh, yeah. Because I talk about it in my shows. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm trying to think of your shows. I feel so much pressure to not get this wrong right now. It doesn't. like, I should know this. I know, but like you're also. Speaking to someone who has like spent their whole lives like arguing with the difference between <laughs> so <laughs> more common among people with more or less education more education yes yep studies okay. have found that the more educated uh, a woman is specifically uh, and also the higher income level the more likely they are to use a bedroom accessory by themselves or with a partner and or I I just take masturbation to mean 
with or without a partner. But yeah, you're more lo- more likely to own a bedroom accessory for sure. Um, so, well, the the researcher who like wants to pull layers into that, it's like, okay, I could see if you have more, you know, higher socioeconomic status, maybe you can afford like a sixty dollar dildo, or maybe someone else can't. <laughs> yeah, but you can masturbate for free with the two you, fingers. That God you gave sure you. can. You <laughs> sure can masturbate. But then, is there like a time component? Yeah. Do they say like why? I'd love yeah. to know. I love to know more about that. But again, that's that's the nerd in me. Well, you're the researcher. Go find out and tell me. <laughs> I know I have some theories as to why, but I'd I'd want them confirmed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. I actually had uh, a guest on my podcast not too long ago, and she had um, a male friend, and he was reluctant to have sex because he didn't want to get anybody pregnant because he thought they would, you know you know, try to trap him into marriage or taking his money. So he would just prefer to masturbate. I mean, that's certainly one way to avoid. Right. If, if that's your perceived risk, that's a pretty excellent choice. Yeah. And also something that we should also communicate with our kids more too. I think also I've been watching Outlander and I know it's not, it's historical fiction. Um, but when they're over in France before the French revolution and the, 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 the rich people, um, the wealthy, they were doing things like waxing and uh, body hair removal and affairs and all kinds of sex stuff uh, and dildos, um, you know, because they had the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like time really is a big component there. Right. Even though, I mean, we all know it only takes like two and a half minutes to rub one off. <laughs> yeah. You know, but... But also maybe there's some privilege in being able to get in the headspace to do that. Like if you're so busy and worried about staying alive or paying your bills, it's probably difficult to get in that headspace. Yeah, possibly. You know, I never even thought about the reasons behind the answer. I've just always known the answer and now you're making me curious. I hate that. (laughs) Well, welcome. Welcome to having a PhD. You're a masochist of wanting to know why. (laughs) I've got lists of questions I can give you if you want to research them because I'm very curious about a lot of things. I just don't have the, uh, you know, well, like you said, the funding or the even the knowledge to do it. All right. So Nicole, how can people find you? One, I do have a podcast. I will say it's more towards sexual and reproductive healthcare providers, uh, but there is definitely, we have a growing number of non-providers that listen and that's called the woman centered health podcast we're on all the platforms or you can find us online at www.womancenteredhealth.com uh i do also just recently i'm not gonna lie i'm a bit of a baby boomer and a millennial body so social media is something (laughs) i'm actively practicing to get it better at i do now just have an instagram that's my most recent addition And you can find me at challenging underscore narratives. And possibly when this podcast gets launched, I will have my website done. And that is www.challengingnarratives.com. And I am also on Facebook at challenging narratives. Perfect. So you can find me on Instagram at standup comedy sex ed. You can find me at standups comedysexed.com and I've got a Facebook group just for this podcast so you can participate in polls, ask questions, 
politely share an alternate point of view and generally let us know what you think of this episode and any other previous episodes. So search Stand Up Comedy Sex Ed Podcast on Facebook. Please subscribe to the podcast, like and share. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day, Nicole. I love talking to you and I look forward to talking to you again. Yes, thank you. I love nerding out about this stuff. So anytime you want to chat again, just let me know. All right, it will do. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too.